Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, as always. Thank you so much for your grace in our lives, the grace to uh, give us opportunity to be together and to support one another with prayer, to take trips into the world supporting the uh, Great Commission to uh, represent you to the nations. Thank you, Father, for the support we receive when we do those things for the men and women who come alongside us in so many different ways to encourage us and challenge us. Thank you, Father, for testing, for taking us out of our comfort zone, for causing us to contend with ourselves so that we would become more like you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the insight that it offers. Thank you that we don't see the world with the eyes that the world has, that we can know things that are beyond our reach. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement it gives us. Thank you for the opportunity to know your son through the word and lord tonight thank you for a story of david and how you worked in his life to make him who he became reminding us father that even the great men of scripture didn't start that way we ask father that what we might learn you might use to make us a little more like them and like you we pray this in jesus name amen so tonight's the third part of the story of david's testing just to remind you, chapters 24 through 26 of 1 Samuel tell the story of David's weakness revealed and then corrected by the Lord. In chapter 24, David employed tactics in dealing with Saul that were more in keeping with Saul's heart than with God's heart. And in chapter 25, the Lord gave David that vivid demonstration, and he did it through that remarkable heroine, Abigail. Having given him then that lesson, now in chapter 26, all that remains is for David to get to retake that test and demonstrate if he's learned anything. So what we're going to study now in chapter 26 is David placed in a very similar situation to the one he saw back in chapter 24 with Saul chasing him. But this time, we will watch to see as David learned the proper way to address Saul. And in the process, did he grow any closer to the Lord? Is he any closer to living according to God's heart, which is what God intended? All of this is in preparation as he will one day become the leader of the nation, become the king. First, let's conclude the story of David and Abigail in chapter 25. That's where... We see the lesson coming to its end. And there's a little romantic twist here at the end. It kind of serves as a foreboding of some bad things to come in David's life. So we'll start there. Verse 38. Verse 38. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. Now Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Paltai, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. So we read verse 38 last time. Last time when we looked at that, we said the Lord had been defending David's honor by taking Nabal's life just ten days after this incident. That number ten, again, representing testimony, which would indicate David's willingness to trust the Lord for his defense had become a testimony of faithfulness, and that in response, the Lord taking Nabal's life became a testimony that God will defend David. You notice David himself 
makes that conclusion. And this is the turning point in his own heart. He comes to conclude, aha, when I let the Lord have room to defend me, he does exactly what he says he will do. And it's that moment that changes, I think, David's approach. And for our sake, Nabal's end is a reminder that the Lord may at times end a person's life as a specific response to their sin. Obviously, Nabal was going to die someday, somehow. But what the Lord chose to do in this man's life is to end his life in a very specific way, at a very specific point in time, so that there would be a message attached to his death. And that's what the Creator can do. The Creator God, that's His prerogative. If our lives don't glorify the Lord, then He may use our death to glorify Himself. That's within His right. You notice in verse 39 that when David heard the news of the sudden death, as I said, he gets the point that God was working on his behalf, and he learns a lesson there. And I think what must have been running through David's mind was he may have considered, what would have happened if I hadn't waited, if Abigail hadn't stopped me? You know, I would have carried out my mission against them all. He would have been dead just the same. But because I'm patient, because I waited on the Lord, I got to see this other path to the Lord's work. Whenever you face a moment of decision for how to respond to your circumstances, you're always generally going to have two options. You're going to have a fleshly option and you're going to have a spirit-led option in how you respond to a given set of circumstances. When you face that moment of decision about how you're going to respond, am I going to choose the fleshly or am I going to do what's godly? Well, consider David's example here. If you take the fleshly option, which is what David was on the course to do himself, then you'll never know what God might have done if you had followed Christ instead. Would he have come to your defense? How would he have come to your defense? What miracle did you miss? What lesson did you not get to learn? But when you take the road of obedience and you get to see the Lord working in reward to your obedience, then you're going to learn those lessons. Then you're going to see his hand. Then your faith is strengthened. Then you think the next time around, I've been here before. I saw him work. I can let him work again. It's a reinforcing virtuous cycle. But the cycle doesn't get started until you take that first step of obedience. That should be the goal of our life in walking with Christ. We should be jealous for the opportunities to see the Lord working in our defense, to provide for our need, to heal us, etc., rather than to take matters into our own hands. We should be jealous for those opportunities. Resist the temptation to take matters into your own hands beyond what the Spirit is allowing you to do. Don't jump the gun like David was prepared to do. Because though God may send us an Abigail, he may not. Don't miss out on the lessons. Okay, so David then turns his attention back to Abigail, as we see now. And this is really the heart of what Samuel wants us to understand at the end of this chapter. This is the main point here at the end. Abigail now becomes an object of David's romantic interest. And he sends his men to her, and he proposes marriage to her. And when Abigail hears the proposal, she's overjoyed. She's probably relieved. I mean, being a widow wasn't easy in this day and in this age. Nabal's property was inherited probably by one of his sons, not by his wife. And so Abigail's prospects were uncertain at best. There's another little element of picturing Christ here in the way she responds. Just as an aside, you notice what she offers to do to the servants of David, who we know pictures Christ. She washes the feet, picturing what Christ did in washing the feet of the disciples. But that simply combines with what we've already studied to reinforce her as a picture. And then as you look at her acceptance, it's not clear from the context if there was really ever an offer on the table. That is to say, it's not clear she could have said no. But if she did have a choice, then she should have refused to marry David. Because though Abigail was eligible to marry David, since Nabal is now dead, David was not eligible to marry. As Samuel points out in his foreboding footnote there to the story in verses 43 and 44, David was already married. In fact, David had already married twice. 
He was married to Saul's daughter, Michal, but in light of his continuing conflict with Saul, Saul has apparently taken his daughter away from David and given Michal to another man. Saul probably did this in part so that David was that much further away from the throne because he was no longer a son-in-law of the king that way. But nevertheless, David has already married a second woman by this point, we're told. So even after Michal, David is now married to Ahinoam of Jezreel. Perhaps David married this woman because he lost Michal, we don't know. But now that he has her, he can't be looking for more wives. There's no reading of the biblical record that permits multiple wives. The mere fact that it happens a lot is simply evidence that there's a lot of sin in the world. It's not evidence that God ever endorsed it. He worked with it in the same way that he works with sinful people every day. That's not the same thing as saying he liked it. In fact, David later, uh, if you know the story in 2 Samuel, he later reclaims Michal as his wife, despite being married now to Ahinoam and Abigail. But when he does that, Michal will actually become a snare to him because she opposes the will of the Lord in his life. So it doesn't play out well that he ends up back with her. In any case, you start to begin to see a little crack here in the wall of David's heart. And you can see Samuel indicating that by including this little bit about David and his wives to emphasize to us that David still has challenges before the Lord. David learned one lesson in that he's avoided killing Nabal and that's going to transfer into a knowledge about how to treat Saul better. But what he has not shown is a propensity to put aside his lust because David's one weakness, perhaps above any other in the scriptures as we can tell, is his love for women and in inappropriate ways. Later as king, as you probably know, this lust is going to lead to a very severe penalty in David's life. But anyway, that's a foreboding of what's coming. It doesn't really get addressed here. For the time being, all is looking up for David. He's come out of the lessons of chapter 25 intact. He's not only done the right thing by Abigail's influence, obviously, but more than that, he's learned the lesson. He sees the point. He's connected the dots. So now all that remains is for him to go into chapter 26 and see if he can apply what he's learned to the real world situation that he failed in the first time. Verse 1 of chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gilbeah, saying, is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul were lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Well, I mentioned earlier that the test God constructed in chapter 24, which David did not do very well in, was going to be repeated by and large in chapter 26. And now you can see that the test is coming. You can see how it develops. Once again, you have Saul chasing David. And now, again, David has to resist Saul, but do so without sinning. That's the test. There are some differences, though, between these two situations. And the key difference is David on the offensive. In chapter 24, you may remember, David was on the defensive. He was constantly reacting to Saul's move. That placed him in a position of fear and uncertainty, from which then he had temptation to act in his own defense. Because when you're fearful, when you're retreating, that's when you feel like you have to do something for yourself. But in this chapter, David is on the other side of the coin. He's dictating the events. He's on the offensive. Instead of being an aggressor, he is defending Saul while accusing others of doing Saul wrong. That's his approach. And this begins in a very similar way. Saul hearing David's in a particular place, in this case, uh, the hill of Hakalah in the wilderness of Ziph. 
And again, taking 3,000 men, there's that connection again reminding us of the link between the three chapters. All three have this 3,000 number in it. And as he sets out, somehow David's watchmen get word that Saul's army is setting out. Perhaps they just had men watching closer to Gilbea. But they don't know where he's going. They just know he's leaving with 3,000 men. So then David sends out spies to confirm that Saul is coming for him. And he gets confirmation. This is the first indication that we see David working with a confidence and a strength that he lacked before. Before he hears they're coming, he goes and he hides in a cave. This time he hears they're coming, he sends out spies, he gets reconnaissance, he's thinking. Then, after he finds out where they've camped, he goes to the encampment at night. This is another reversal of the prior story. In the prior story, who found who? Saul found David's encampment. In this story, David finds Saul's encampment. And as David and his men arrive at night, they find them all sleeping, apparently no one awake, guarding the king. And lying right next to the king is Abner, the commander of the army. This would be, presumably, the man who had the chief responsibility to protect the king. And he's asleep on the job. Verse 6, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and Abishai, the son of Zerulah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David said also, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So again, David on the offensive here, he goes down into the camp and he sneaks among them and he asks for a volunteer here and he gets one to go with him. Notice again, he's not hiding in a cave. He's, he's openly risking his life, essentially, and doing it for a noble purpose, which is this, to convince the king of his loyalty that among all the men Saul trusts, he should trust David the most. And he asks for this volunteer, as I said. David asks a Hittite first, a man named Ahimelech. And he asks Abishai also. Abishai is David's nephew by David's sister, Zeruiah. All I need is another vowel in line there and I'd be here. So it's David's nephew, Abishai, who agrees to go, which indicates his bravery. I think the bravery must have run in the family because Abishai's brother, Joab, who also gets mentioned here, is David's commander of the army later when David becomes king. And so David and Abishai take the brave step of creeping down the hill into the camp of Saul. They find the camp asleep, as you hear, with Saul with a weapon in the ground next to his head and so on. I think he probably stuck his spear into the ground not far from his head as a way of getting access to it quickly, if there had been some reason to wake up quickly. And then you have Abishai, quick-thinking Abishai. He looks at the situation, sizes it up, and he says, you know, this is a perfect moment. We can put an end to all of this conflict. Give me one shot at him. That's all I need. That's exactly the same kind of moment we saw in chapter 24. So for all of the little differences, and the important one here of David on the offensive, nonetheless, we've come to essentially the same moment of a decision. Now, keep in mind, in the first example in the cave, David knew enough not to kill Saul. Remember, he stopped the guy that was in the cave with him from doing it even then. 
David, in this case, does the same thing. He warns his friend that the one who strikes down God's anointed will certainly be guilty before the Lord. And that's more or less what David said the first time in the cave. So, so far, we're tracking similarly to the first experience. But notice what's changed from the last time. David also tells this man that Saul will see the Lord's discipline just as David has. If the Lord was willing to discipline the future anointed king, then how much more will the Lord discipline the present anointed king? That's his logic. David doesn't know how Saul's going to come to his end, but after watching the Lord deal with Nabal, David knows it's going to happen somehow when the time is right according to God's plan. That's entirely new. David did not show any evidence of that in his first experience with Saul. That's the fruit of David's testing. He has gone into essentially the same situation, but this time he's thinking about the Lord and about the Lord's power to defend him. It's not merely David's actions that are different. It's his heart. It's his mind. He's thinking about things from a different point of view. And the principal shift is off himself and onto the Lord and what the Lord will do. When you face trials and experiences like this, things that are designed to grow you spiritually, you're going to see the fruit of those testings most clearly in how it changes the way you think about God. Where before you think perhaps only of yourself or of your circumstances or of your abilities to contend with those circumstances or all the ways you can scheme or lie or in some way get around your situation. That's the old you. In the future, by God's grace, we begin to consider the Lord's purposes in why it's even happening to begin with. And what's the value of it to us? And how do we gain something from this? How do we persevere in the face of the trial? Our attitude just shifts 180 degrees. You see the world with eyes for eternity from God's vantage point, so to speak. When you start thinking like that instinctively in certain moments, you're seeing the fruit of those prior moments. You're seeing what God's been doing in your heart. Like David, you realize things aren't as they seem. For example, in this case, what seemed like really good fortune, that is, I could kill Saul and be done with him, That's actually a test of your heart. An option that looks like the perfect opportunity to solve your problem is actually a trap that would lead you into bigger problems. And what seems like a foolish alternative, which is to say, don't kill him, well, that may actually be the obedience the Lord is demanding. Learning to see the world with godly eyes, informed by the love and the truth of the Lord, is the ultimate reward of the trials that he brings and the spiritual growth that results. It's not so much that you did the right thing, it's that you knew the right thing, that you understood what God was doing, and then you could act in that knowledge. So David ends with the conclusion that he could never raise his hand, and I'm going to put in parenthetical statement here, again, against the Lord's anointed. Because he did raise his hand the first time. Where before he objected only to killing the king, now he objects to any show of insubordination, any disrespect whatsoever. So if David is not intent on dishonoring Saul at all in this situation, what can he do to make an impression that's of any value. What what is his option now, I guess, is the question. His option now is to shift his target away from Saul and toward one of Saul's most trusted aides. David orders Abishai to take Saul's spear and Saul's personal canteen of water, basically, and then leave the area. And then Samuel, the writer, explains that David's ability to move so easily within the camp without waking anyone was because the Lord was at work in the moment, bringing this deep sleep upon everybody. So here again, a contrast. Where before David's course of action brought the conviction of the Holy Spirit, now David's course of action brings the assistance of the Lord's Spirit into the act. That's a lesson that should be obvious to all of us. As you hear the Lord and walk in his counsel then he will give you strength and wisdom and at times perhaps even supernatural assistance to serve his purpose in you doing as he bids. But for the one who takes the matters into his own hands, then the result will disappoint. Moreover, we know the conviction of the Spirit as we recognize 
we're walking outside the Lord's counsel. Experience that once is usually enough for you to yearn for the other, right? To yearn for his approval. So what, what is it that David's up to? Why do you take the equipment? Well, it's not to dishonor Saul. We've just covered that. What's he up to? Well, we find out next, verse 13. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. And David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner replied, Who are you? Who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord, the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head. So you start to understand now where David's true target is. He's moved away far enough that he can't be chased easily. He's in a position of some distance here. And from there he calls. He wakes up everybody, directing his call, though, to Abner. Another contrast, where before he was directing his call to Saul, now he's directing his call to Abner. And he essentially dares Abner to respond. Of course, Abner doesn't know who this is at first, but when you're called out by name by somebody in the wilderness, you feel some compunction to respond. So he he responds. Then David lowers the boom, and here's what he says. He says, first of all, are you not a man? And is there anyone in Israel like you? And what he's saying to Abner is, you're an important, powerful man. You have an important job to protect the king, and yet you failed in that job. And David says, one of the people came to destroy the king tonight. Now, what he's referring to here is Abishai. So Abishai literally came to kill Saul. This is not an exaggeration. He's speaking literally of truth here. If it weren't for David, Saul would be dead. And so Abner did, in fact, fail to protect the king's life as expected. David is not being dramatic. David was the one who took over Abner's job in light of the situation. And, of course, the point he's making to Saul is, you put your trust in the wrong men. You put your trust in this guy who failed you, paranoid Saul, who was obviously willing to put trust in a man who fell asleep on the job trying to protect him, right? And now David is saying, if I protected you and he didn't protect you, why are you trusting him and not trusting me? That's the essential contrast he's trying to draw. It's a, an exercise in embarrassing Abner, not embarrassing Saul, but yes, making a point to Saul about where trust should be invested. And then he presses his case a little further by pointing out that Saul's men should be put to death for allowing their king to be so vulnerable. And here again, David's not speaking in an exaggerated term. That's literally true. That would be the usual penalty for failing a king in this way. But we know Saul's not likely to carry out this penalty because he needs all the friends he can get. And I expect David knew that. So David's merely making the point here again that if uh, Saul wished to pursue his adversaries, well he could pursue the men who were supporting him because they were his true adversaries. And then lastly, David offers the proof of his accusations. He produces those things that he just stole, which had to have been a pretty dramatic moment. Right up to that moment, it's just some crazy guy yelling at you from across the ravine. Next thing you know, he produces your spear, and that's when Saul goes, wait a minute, he has my spear. How did that happen, right? He makes his point, so to speak, with the spear. It communicated two things, that David had the opportunity to do Saul harm, but held back. And then secondly, that Abner and Saul's men were not worthy of Saul's trust. Earlier in the first encounter, David held up that corner of the hem of Saul's robe as evidence of the same idea. But David claimed the hem was proof that he wouldn't hurt the king. And yet, as we've studied it, it's actually the symbol of the opposite. 
in the first encounter. It was a symbol of him actually taking liberty with the king, doing injury to his honor in the way that he did it, right? This time, David holds up even more threatening items, but the point is entirely different. He's indicting Abner, not threatening Saul. It's a totally different focus. And then just as before, David and Saul exchange words from a distance. This is the key point in all three of the chapters. And I want you to listen to it carefully. We'll spend some time making some comparisons. Verse 17. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. He also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, well, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight today. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Like before, Saul calls David his son. This term is probably even more disingenuous this time than the last because now Saul has taken away David's wife. He's even less related to him than he was before. In response, David asked the king first, Why are you pursuing me? What offense have I committed? And of course, there's no answer to that question. And there's nothing that David has done. He's simply acting out of jealousy, paranoia, fear, and pride. Next, David begins to speak wisdom to Saul. He begins first by acknowledging that the Lord is the one acting behind the scenes in the conflict. You notice, he says, the Lord delivered you into my hand. The Lord is doing all these things. Next, he says to Saul, if the Lord is stirring you up to be this way against me, well then, let us go make an offering to appease the Lord's anger. Let's put this to rest. Or, he says, if it's men who are leading you to think badly of me, then David says they're cursed because they're acting against the Lord's anointed. Either way, he's arguing, you have no reason to fear me. There must be some cause for this that's not me. Finally, he appeals to Saul for mercy, and he says, may it be that my blood not be allowed to be spilled away from the presence of the Lord. And what he's referring to here is, I don't want to die as a fugitive running in the wilderness away from the tabernacle. It's a subtle way of asking that he be allowed to die at home as an old man, which implies there's peace between Saul and David. And then he ends with a repetition of the statement that he is just a flea compared to Saul, diminishing his importance. Saul says much the same thing in response, sort of acknowledging, yeah, you're a better man and good things are going to happen to you and you're blessed. But this time, Saul goes one step further and he promises to stop seeking David's life. He didn't say that the first time, but still, David knows that he's never going to be safe around Saul. In fact, look at the way that passage ends, and it's similar to the first one. David went on his way, Saul returned to his place. Think of those two words as spiritual statements instead of physical statements. David is moving on. He's maturing. He's going to the path God has for him, to the destination God has designed for him. Saul's not going forward. Saul's going back. 
Saul goes back to his place where he has been, where he's been in trouble from the start. He's not moving anywhere except back to where he's been. And that's really a great metaphor for how these two men's spiritual lives are going as well. Now, all I've done is run through a quick narration of what you've already seen on the page before you and recognize I added very little insight there. We just wanted to catalog it all. But now the time comes to compare what David said here to what he said previously, because just on its face, it's easy to conclude that really nothing changed. I mean, yeah, he didn't cut his robe, but he took his spear. It could appear as though the same scene is played out twice without a lot of difference between the two. And if we come to that conclusion, of course, we miss the main point. The main point is the man you see here dealing with Saul in this circumstance is an entirely different sort of person than the one who was dealing with him just two chapters earlier. And a comparison between the two things that were said in the two respective moments demonstrates that difference. And I'll show you what I mean. When you compare David's words in what we just read to what he said previously, you'll immediately detect differences in his attitude and in his heart. And to help you do that, I want you to listen again to what David said in the first encounter after he takes the robe to show Saul. Verse 10 of chapter 24. He says, Behold, this days your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? I'm adding a little dramatic tone to it, but I hope I'm doing that honestly. If you compare the words he's saying, the emphasis of I and me and my hand, the whole concept that I didn't do anything against you, well, I cut your robe, but I didn't do anything against you, I hope you die. I didn't do anything against you. The wickedness will see the wicked. You see the point? It's wanting to have his cake and eat it too. It's wanting to maintain this sense of blamelessness while at the same time having a heart of anger and hatred, a desire to see the negative outcomes. And when you compare that, it's a very different thing. I'll I'll run through some of the comparisons now. In the first encounter, David, as you probably could tell, speaks in tones of arrogance. He's issuing veiled threats against the king. He shows off the hem of the robe and then has the audacity to claim he has no rebellion in his hands. He claims Saul was lying in wait for David, and yet it was David who crept up on an unsuspecting Saul. And the tone is so different, right? In this case, he asked the Lord would avenge David. Upon Saul, no less. And he preaches a proverb to Saul, as if he could teach the king here about wickedness, which implies David viewed as Saul as acting wickedly. And of course, there's a truth to what he's saying, but that's not the point. The facts have never been in question here. The issue has been how you respond to the facts. In everything he's saying, David's actually portraying the opposite in his heart of what he says in his words. The impression you're left with is someone of arrogance, pride, and defiance. But when you look at David's words to Saul in the second case, which we've already read, the tone is so different. The words are so much softer. For example, he makes no accusation against Saul whatsoever. He issues no threat against Saul at all. Instead, he makes a heartfelt appeal for Saul to have mercy on him. He looks to others as the cause for Saul's anger, even to whether the Lord himself may be the one causing it. 
but not to Saul's heart itself, not making accusations against the man, not judging the man. When he speaks to the Lord, David doesn't ask for revenge or claim that the Lord's going to smack Saul down. Rather, he simply appeals to God's recompense. He says, to the righteous will be the reward. Let God judge on that basis. Complete opposite. Rather than wanting the Lord to punish Saul for his bad behavior, he's asking the Lord to reward him for his righteous behavior and what he did for Saul. And then finally, notice David's appeal. It's not to Saul at the end, unlike the first time. He makes his appeal to the Lord for protection. So the overall tone is positive towards Saul, respectful, and directed with trust and dependence on the Lord, not on his own hand. So in short, David's heart and mind are focused on his relationship with the Lord, not on his relationship with Saul. His approach would be an excellent example of Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's demonstrating that he knows that it's truly something bigger going on than just Saul. Now, when you take time to carefully observe these differences in David's commentary, you get the chance to see the growth in this man just two chapters, three chapters apart in Scripture. What at first would sound like an identical speech is actually a world apart from what he did in the first encounter. David knows Saul is acting irrationally. He knows that Saul's out to kill him. That hasn't changed, but he no longer holds it against Saul. While yet he still seeks some resolution, why wouldn't he? Who wouldn't? That doesn't mean he has to put it at Saul's feet. He puts it at the Lord's feet now. His experience is a great reminder to us that repentance can be really hard to see in others if you aren't paying attention to the subtle cues of a person's words or their attitude. Because for every dramatic Paul on the road to Damascus experience of repentance that we might see in life, there are going to be a lot more of those subtle David speaking with Saul repentance examples to point to. And that's true in your friends, your family members, even in your own heart. Often when you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it comes out in subtle ways, especially in the beginning of your walk with the Lord. And that means your word choices may change. Your attitudes begin to shift. Even if your behaviors don't move in radical ways right away, eventually all those small steps will begin to add up to larger, more obvious changes. That's what sanctification looks like. Have you ever run into an old high school friend from years ago that you haven't seen in a long time, and they look completely different than the way you remember them? Maybe they've gained weight or lost weight. Maybe they have different color hair. Maybe they express different political views. Maybe they have all these new hobbies. They've had a conversion experience. They've had one thing after another. And when you have those moments, you get an object lesson of just how a bunch of small changes over time can result in a really big outcome at the end of it all. You just weren't there to see it all play out. You just got the end of it all when you met them in that one moment. That's how sanctification is supposed to work in the believer. Which means... We have to be prepared to recognize and encourage in others around us those moments as we detect them so that as they make those strides, they themselves can recognize there is progress happening in their life. That's a tremendous catalyst for that process to continue forward. Don't wait for the full change to take hold before you're willing to recognize in someone else's life that the Spirit is moving. Acknowledge good changes when you see it. Of course, you got to do it in the right way. You don't tell people, you know, you're not nearly as mean and selfish as you used to be. You know, it's a good way and a right way to do those things. But, but encouragement can put the walk of sanctification into overdrive for someone who themselves may not realize that they're making progress. Every small step becomes a bridge to the next moment, because over time, that person's heart, as they soften, as they yield to the will of the Holy Spirit in their life, they will make changes. But it can be slow. 
If we withhold critique because we don't see enough to suit ourselves, we put ourselves in the place of God as their judge, or if we're not attentive to the small changes in people's life. For example, someone who used to gossip a lot doesn't gossip as much. Would you notice that? Or someone who used to be less quick to forgive is now quicker to forgive. Did you notice that? You may miss those steps if you're too busy remembering their past or you're unwilling to consider that real change is taking place before your eyes. Sometimes you miss that not only in others, but you miss that in yourself too, for the same reason. And the enemy loves to discourage us when we look at ourselves and we're doing things similar to the way we used to do them, not realizing, of course, that maybe the frequency has diminished, maybe the degree has diminished. These are evidences in themselves of God doing work in our heart. When you come to these points in your life, remember how similar David's two speeches were. Remember how easily you could miss the change if you didn't take time to note the subtleties of the language or the tone. And remind yourself that progress takes time like that. Don't allow the fact that it takes time to become licensed for sin in the meantime. But at the same time, don't overlook that small changes are still evidence of the Spirit at work. And in time, small changes add up to something very big, both in yourself and others. So that's, that's what we'd like to remember. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for reminding us that you work in our hearts to move us from place to place and that it takes time because we are... Uh, so often we're just stubborn and other times, Father, we're slow to learn. But in any event, Father, it takes time. I thank you, Lord, that you don't give up. You never stop working. The Spirit never goes away. But I also know, Father, that in each of us, a little encouragement goes a long way. And I pray, Father, each of us in our lives, as we encounter uh, fellow believers, would make an effort to notice and to, in some appropriate way, take note of, of how the Spirit is working in each of us. Help encouraging that process along, Father, and help us, Father, to uh, recognize it in ourselves when necessary so that we ourselves are not discouraged at times. And uh, thank you, Lord, that that's, that's the God we serve, that you care enough for us, Father, that you work with us through trial and testing and showing us better ways to live and serve you and that you call us each, Father, to, uh, to follow you even after we've stumbled so many times in the past. Each day is a new day to serve you, Father. Thank you for that. Bring us back on a new day and a future day to to study some more, Father. We pray for that as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.